Hello, friends. Uh, I'm Peter Rosenbaum. I'm one of the editors of Developmental Medicine, and I have the privilege today to uh, do an interview podcast with Saranda Bekteshi, whose paper called Eye Movements and Stress During Eye Tracking Gaming Performance in Children with Dyskinetic Cerebral Palsy is uh, in uh, a, an upcoming issue of Developmental Medicine. And so there's a chance today for Saranda to tell us, Dr. Saranda, by the way, uh, to tell us about uh, her work. So let me ask you, what prompted the question? It's an unusual thing to be interested in. Where did it come from? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you very much for the invitation. It's an absolute honor to do this. Um, and of course, a very interesting question. Um, so I would say there are three points that perhaps could explain it better. Um, the first one is that we have to understand understand it within the context of dyskinetic cerebral palsy and the reason why eye tracking research is very important. Um, so up to 70% of children with dyskinetic CP are unable to speak and they have um, limited control and coordination of their hands so this would mean that the path towards independent communication, which is so important for quality of life, as well as access to computers, for example, for educational and uh, recreational purposes, using a mouse or a keyboard or a touchscreen is also impossible. Um, and um, clinical practice supports the use of eye tracking technology. So within that context, we believe that our study has high applicability. Uh, and that is the reason why we think it's uh, important to be investigated. Um, more specifically about the eye movements and the stress measures, so why we decided to do this, um, is that when we have um, human-computer interaction, such as the eye tracking technology, there are two um, aspects that are important. Uh, the first one is that the person has to be able to interact with the device. So they have to be able to use the device. And um, in the context of eye tracking technology, it is the eye movements that facilitate this interaction. So uh, the eye tracker reports the eye movements and then converts them to um, movements of the cursor on the screen. So uh, the quality of the eye movements um, has to be optimal, let's say, but this has never been investigated in this kinetic CP. So we do not know, or did not know at least, um, whether the child can interact with it or not. Um, the second aspect is the um, effort of use. So the idea would be that, okay, the child can interact with it, but is this effortful or not? Um, and if we use something that causes us effort, right. the likelihood of discontinuing, so abandoning it or, or not using it is very high. And because we know the uh, benefits of eye tracking technology, this is something that obviously uh, we don't want to happen in children with dyskinetic CP, uh, particularly because they also don't have a lot of options remaining. So if eye tracking technology doesn't work, then that would be a bigger issue to find something um, that would facilitate independent communication and access to computers. Is there your your interest in stress? Is that based upon clinical observation or based upon the idea that uh, the all or nothing idea that you just talked about would likely create stress? 
So the idea of the stress, well, um, there is a study showing that there was a recent study um, in 2021 showing that um, tracking technology um, was experienced or reported by participants, half of them with CP, as quite effortful. Um, and we know that in um, children with dyskinetic cerebral palsy, uh, stress in increasing stress exacerbates dystonia and hoyathetosis, the two movement disorders. Um, and then exacerbated dystonia and hoyathetosis negatively impact any performance. So this is sort of like a chain of um, why we think that um, this might be important to research and, and see whether uh, an increase in effort that was measured with uh, stress variables um, does impact how these ch children interact and how these children use an eye tracking device. Do we know anything about whether training diminishes the level of stress? Um, so currently, um, evidence-based knowledge, no. However, um, there is a little hint from our own findings uh, that might um, lead to that. So uh, we had 12 children with skinetic cerebral palsy, uh, six of which had uh, prior eye tracking experience of two to three years, and six of them were complete beginners. Uh, and um, we could only explore descriptives, uh, so it was not possible to do statistical comparisons. Uh, but we do see that children who had prior experience also had lower stress. Um, and it kind of would make sense because it's this familiarity with the, uh, with the device itself. You know? So if you use it, then the idea would be that it's less effortful um, after two, three years. So what's your next study going to be? Um, well, I have currently a study that um, we are finishing um, and we did explore eye movements and um, stress measures um, during a six-week intervention study. So we have a continuation of what this paper observed um, to see whether, in fact, pre-post intervention, we have these differences. Um, but the results of that study um, would hopefully be in soon. And then we can make another podcast. Um, okay, so you're teasing the listener at this point, um, but a longitudinal study, even a shortitudinal study of six weeks, suggests you're you're implying anyway that that there may be some benefit. Now, yes, I, I think you also talked about the idea of introducing these technologies very early in children's lives. Do you have any sense of what early means? Is it two years, five years? Um, yes, so um, my answer would probably be based on another uh, prior study uh, that showed that in children, children as young as three years old uh, are able to use an eye, eye tracking device. Um, our children started from age five uh, and onwards. Uh, my personal suggestion would be that even three years of old um, would be able to start interacting with it. And then of course the path towards um, independence needs to be very tailored. 
the expectations as well within the abilities of the child. Uh, so uh, it's not a one size fits all. Um, and what we should aim to achieve is the highest independence within the abilities of the child. Um, but every step forward is an important step forward. Are you a neuroscientist? Um, I'm a physiotherapist. Oh, okay. Okay, so a physiotherapist who's gone sideways. How did you get from being a physiotherapist to what you're doing now? Um, well, I had a lot of interest in neuro rehabilitation, um, so working with children with cerebral palsy. And in fact, I was even more privileged because I actually am working with dyskinetic CP and the uh, fact that it's so understudied compared to, for example, spastic CP. It's uh, extra motivation for the work that we do. Um, the importance of assistive technologies is um, immense. My fascination with eye tracking technology is beyond because um, I see the children who have these severe motor impairments and you would have the idea that this is a child that could not do anything and then you have a child who can add you on Facebook and can send you a WhatsApp message and can play games and um, it was a learning experience for me as well and I was very privileged to um, take that all in firsthand you know so being there and witnessing how they learn and how they progress um, so so this is quite far from classic physiotherapy. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. And but have you, have you thought about how these ideas fit with the World Health Organization's framework for health? Um, yes, yes. So um, within the ICF, I believe currently where we are at is within the um, activity and participation domains. Um, however, um, as also said in or reported in previous research, there is a fine line between defining what goes to body functioning and what goes to. Um, so um, we have the eye movement parameters, which is the motor aspect of it, which could be in the body functioning and structure part, uh, activity and participation in terms of functioning in daily life activities. And then, of course, the immense importance of the environmental factors and support um, of parents, teachers, peers um, in this process of lear starting learning how to use it and then uh, applying it in everyday life. Can I ask whether parents have had and uh, any reservations, any concerns about using augmentative technology instead of talking? Um, so I personally worked with clinicians and not with parents. However, um, the parents have been so positive and so supportive um, when it came to us contacting them for, for example, informed consents. Um, they were very happy to um allow let's say allow their child uh, to participate um, and we do have some questionnaires that they filled in um, with the for example the psychosocial impact of assistive devices mm -hmm. um, that is quite high so I, I think from my personal experience um, there are no specific reservations and in fact they do see a lot of benefits and they do encourage uh, its use the only issue in general um, from what we have been 
told or reported is the structuring of training. Um, and that is the, we start with, for example, the current study that we're, we are discussing at the moment uh, with ideas for future research um, to assist clinical practice in structuring training, because we all sort of know that this works and we all know that this is beneficial. Um, now it's the idea of how to um, customize it, how to tailor it for for the specific child that we work with. Yeah. Have you have you and your group thought about writing up uh, a report or an account of what you just described, the training, so that somebody like me knows how to start such a program? Um, well, we do have um, previous research uh, that my groups and myself um, were part of. That's a Delphi study. Uh, and we published clinical guidelines in 2020, international clinical guidelines um, with Australia, UK, Sweden, and us in Belgium. Um, and there are a lot of uh, implications, so clinical implications, um, on how to trial the device, how to um, start with the device, how to do follow-ups and assessments. Uh, but still, what is currently missing is more um, direct, um, I would say more direct guidelines um, as to, for example, just as an example, you know, if you have a child that is a complete beginner, number one, perhaps you could start with games and then continue with communic simple communication. So these are still things that I think are missing and would be very important and interesting for future research. Okay, uh, you've teased us with uh, results that are being analyzed right now, uh, and we expect to uh, read about them and hear about them in the near future. Is there anything else you'd like people to know about the work you've done to date? Um, well, if I think what I could do is maybe summarize the take-home messages that we have from this yes. That might be important um, from the aspect of the eye movements. Um, we did not find we did not find any differences or significant differences between um, children with dyskinetic CP and typically developing children. So this increases the confidence that the child does have the necessary quality, let's say, of eye movements to begin with, because here we also include those without experience. Um, the second one is that um, there was no um, differences in stress, no significant differences between rest and uh, eye tracking performance. So um, then we sort of conclude that eye tracking is not a source of effort of stress. Um, and then the third one, which I think is quite important for the clinical practice, is that um, we believe that age has nothing to do with um, in terms of how the child interacts and um, uses the device, but it is experience. So our main main uh, take-home message is that early provision of eye tracking is critical, um, and that um, we don't we don't need to have particular children to target. So there's no particular functional profile with checklist that we can say, okay, this is and this is not. Um, the idea is that the opportunity should be given to all children and then training should be optimized and tailored 
per child's abilities um, because there are, um, yeah, there is high confidence. And I hope I'm not biased here <laughs> of how much I <clears throat> believe in the technology um, that there is an insured path towards independence is just a bit of patience and a bit of work together uh, with the support team to help the child reach there. Thank you very much, Dr. Sandra <laughs> Bekteshi. I expect that on the basis of both the paper and this podcast, you're going to be getting a lot of uh, communication from people who want to know more, who want to be able to apply this, who want to work with your group. This is very interesting. Oh, very modern and very helpful. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. much. It was a pleasure. Thank you.